0: After John Wesley's visit with us last week, a number of you came up and asked what I thought were pertinent questions. Pertinent so much, in fact, I'd like to take just three or four minutes to address these questions for all of you, because they may have been questions that came to your mind. And if they didn't, they should have. And here's the answer. One question was, Was John Wesley kicked out of the Anglican Church? Now, that question came about because it was repeatedly stated that the churches were closed to him and he had no church in which he could preach. And I'm glad to answer, no, he was not kicked out of the Anglican Church. He was a most respected clergyman of the Anglican Church up until the time of his death. The fact of his not being able to preach in any of the churches grew out of the fact that in the Anglican Church, the entire country was divided up into parishes. A priest was assigned to each of the parishes, and only the priest could determine who could preach in that church. Now, that's also true in the Methodist Church in America. A minister cannot come into a Methodist Church and preach without the invitation of the pastor in charge. It was the individual priests who denied John Wesley access to their pulpits. In fact, on the occasion that he went back to his father's church at Epworth, a church that his father had served for 40 years, and he asked for permission to participate in the service, and the priest refused to allow him to have that participation. And so he announced that in the afternoon at 4 o'clock, he would preach from his father's tomb that lay alongside the church. And at 4 o'clock, hundreds gathered and he preached to the people from his father's tomb. So he was not kicked out of the church. It was just that each individual parish priest refused him permission to preach. Now he had no pulpit of his own because he was on the faculty at Oxford University. Had he been appointed to a parish, he would have had that total freedom that all other parish priests had. So the answer is yes, he was a dedicated Anglican in full appreciation by his church up until the time of his death. The other question that was raised was a statement I made that the historian Lecky said that In all probability, John Wesley single-handedly prevented a revolution in England equivalent to the French Revolution. And that person wanted to know how this came about. Well, first of all, there was a spiritual revival that went throughout England, and with changed hearts and changed attitudes, there was a climate for peace that otherwise wouldn't be there. But more than that, He contributed greatly in other ways than simply the church itself. He was a prolific writer. He had over 400 of his writings published. Four of these books were the history of England. One of them was a medical book that was the number one seller in all of England at the time of its publication. He realized over $150,000 in royalties from his medical book. He gave it back to the publisher and said, now, print up an equivalent number of copies of the book and give them away free to those who can't afford to buy it. He wrote a book on the environment, pointing out the responsibilities for the environment that we're constantly being reminded of today. He wrote many pamphlets against slavery. William Wilberforce was the one man in England that led the fight for the freedom of the slaves. He is to England what Abraham Lincoln was to America. And he was more greatly influenced by John Wesley than any other man in the abolition of slavery. John Wesley opened a school for boys, poor boys, who couldn't go to school anywhere else. He opened the first free medical dispensary in England, opened two for the poor people. And in addition to this, he opened an orphanage. He opened a loan company that would give out loans to struggling poor people who were trying to have businesses of their own. All of this in addition to everything he did in the establishment of the church. So out of this kind of life and contribution to the nation, he was given the responsibility for turning England around and putting it on its feet. So these questions were asked. I wanted to share the answers with you as I shared them with them. <laughs> Did you hear about the little fella in church who was disruptive? And his mother leaned over and said, son, You'd better quieten down. You'll disturb the minister and he'll lose his place and he'll have to start over at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're finished with the book of Isaiah. We have been in the book of Isaiah throughout the month of January, December and we have followed the plight of the Jews as they were being prepared for being taken into exile. We went through all of the exilic period with 2nd Isaiah, and we came out of the exile with 3rd Isaiah. For the next two weeks, we will be in the book of Ruth, but we are not breaking away from Isaiah altogether because there is one verse in 2nd Isaiah on which these next two lessons hang. It is a statement that Israel would become a light to all the nations. And indeed, after the exile, it was an altogether different story. The Old Testament is filled with short stories. The stories hold the whole Old Testament together If we were simply to wade through the Old Testament with the theological concepts, the rules, the laws, after a while it would become a vast space in which we couldn't attach ourselves mentally at any point. So much of the Old Testament is hard to understand. But there are stories from time to time that bring light and understanding to such a degree that then we can move from one stage to the next and we see God portrayed so thoroughly in ways in which simple prose don't reveal him. And so the stories are very important. Each of us has memories of childhood and the Bible stories that were told us. My favorite was Joseph for two reasons that's my name Joseph Vance and he had a coat of many colors and I love coats of many
1: colors
0: (laughs) but Joseph is a story of of a man who was loved by his father betrayed by his brothers lied about by his adversaries imprisoned and emerged as the savior of the kingdom it's a magnificent story and there are others the story of Esther the story of Jonah, the story of Samson. In all of the stories of the Old Testament, all of them incorporate these things. The battle between good and evil. The distrust that comes between persons. The unfaithfulness to God. The intervention of God and the happy ending. But the story of Ruth doesn't fit this category at any point. There's no dissension. There's no controversy. There's no battle. There's no rift between good and evil. And unlike all the other Bible stories where God eventually intervenes, God plays no part at all in the story of Ruth. And yet, it's one of the most significant of the stories of the Old Testament. The writer of our lesson material says that when she was a child, she remembered reading a column by Eleanor Roosevelt, who had a daily column in the newspaper called My Day. And in that column, on one occasion, a reader had written in to ask, if you could write one piece of literature that has ever been written What piece of literature would you want to have been the author of? And supposedly, Eleanor Roosevelt answered, I would have written the book of Ruth. And it does have great beauty, it has great truth, and it is a book of great importance. You know the story, but here it is anyway. Naomi was the mother of two fine young men. Her husband, Emelie um, it didn't come out, my tongue rolled on me, (laughs) (laughs) left Bethlehem, which was their home, at a time of famine. And they went into the country of Moab because it was a fertile country, Surprisingly, even though the two lands were so close together, the land of Moab rarely had famine while Judah was constantly having recurrent famines. And at this particular time, Bethlehem was barren and the land of Moab was producing abundantly. The problem was the Hebrews hated the Moabites. Now in the book of Deuteronomy it explains why they were hated. One reason that the Jews hated the Moabites is because as they came out of the wilderness the Moabites were there but offered them no help, no food, no drink. Even though their plight was desperate they would give them no help at all and this brought a schism between the two groups. So much so in fact that the book of Deuteronomy says The Moabites will never be allowed in the assembly. They must be kept from all assemblies, totally desegregated from the other. The origin of the Moabites as a people and all of the tribes of the Old Testament originate with one of the founding fathers, and they are all cousins even today, but still warring as cousins will. But... The Moabites traced their ancestry to Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, who was the father of the chosen. Lot, after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And the Moabites were the descendants of that relationship. So they were hated at a great distance from the heart of the Hebrew people. So for this couple to go into the land of Moab was to break away from their own people and take up residence in a land of hated peoples. But they were desperate. There was famine back home. There was plenty in the land of Moab and they prospered well. The two sons met two beautiful young women who were Moabites That's the risk you take when you introduce your family to others about whom you have qualms. There may be a relationship developed that will bring you back together, and that's what happened here. The two sons fell in love with two beautiful young women who were Moabites, and they were married. The story is silent as to the relationship of the entire family at this time, but the implication is that everything was going wonderfully They were living in their adopted land. They had integrated themselves into the people of the land through the two young women, and the future was bright. And then there came the death of the husband, whose name I won't pretend to speak. (laughs) (laughs) On the death of her husband, then, Naomi was dependent upon her two sons for family and the two daughters-in-law. And all went well for 10 years. After 10 years, each of the sons died as well. The Old Testament names of the people who are a part of the story always have meaning. And the meaning of the two sons' names meant weakness and sickness. And so apparently they were frail, having died at such a young age. And so with their death came Naomi in a strange land, two daughters-in-law, but no family beyond that. And then word came that the famine was over back in Bethlehem, the city in which she had been reared, that she loved, the city of her ancestry. Knowing full well that the two daughters-in-law might well marry other Moabites, that in time, she would be a widow in a land that was foreign to her. There would be no compassion for her among the Moabites. And so she decided the best thing she could do would be to go back home. And so she set out to go back to Bethlehem. Wasn't a great distance, just over the Jordan River, some distance away, easily traversed. And so she announced to her daughters-in-law that she was returning to the land of her people And some of the most beautiful words recorded in literature emerged in those moments. They said, you are our family now. We want to go with you. And Naomi said, no, you go back to your families. You can find husbands here. You can have children. And you can continue your life. It's too late for me to have another husband and to rear sons that you might marry. There's no hope for you with me. So you go back to your homes and there live with your parents until you find someone to marry and then have your own family. Both of them wept. Can you imagine the love that must have been between a mother-in-law and daughters-in-law that held them so close together? perhaps more than anything, their common love for the sons and the husbands that they had shared. It hadn't been that long since their death, and the feeling was still very deep and loving. Naomi said, return to the homes out of which you came. Orpah was one of the daughters-in-law, and very reluctantly, she turned and returned to her home. Ruth, rather, said, I'll never leave you. And then she spoke the beautiful words that we remember so fondly as an expression of true and deep love. Entreat me not to leave you, nor to return from following after you. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. And where thou diest, I will die, and there I will be buried. So often in the course of my ministry, I have been asked to read that in a marriage ceremony. And so many of them are not familiar with the Bible story, and when I share with them the the purpose for these words having been spoken, and between the persons with whom they were spoken, very often they say, I don't believe I want that red at my wedding after all. (laughs) In fact, when the, the three candles were introduced in a wedding service, It was originally called the Ruth Candle, where the two come together and light the one candle. But that was dropped after a while. I guess word got around that you're making a pledge to your (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law. But they did return to Jerusalem, and they began life there. When they returned, everyone said, Here is Naomi. She has come back home. And Naomi said, Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for the Lord has looked unfavorably upon me. She was an unhappy person, having lost her family in a strange land, coming back to nothing, but in tow was a daughter-in-law who vowed never to leave her son. If that daughter-in-law had not been there, the story may have ended there. But on her return, the story really begins. And that's next week's lesson, what takes place after they get back to Jerusalem. But there's so much to be said about the first part of the story. It is a story of loyalty. Now, the writer of our lesson, if you read your lesson today, will realize that she put most of her emphasis upon the fact that we are living at a time today where loyalty is often unknown, where we do not have a sense of loyalty, particularly in businesses and corporations, where there has been a downsizing of corporations and there seems to be no feeling between the top and the bottom part of the corporation in what's happening, that there is no loyalty to the employees who have been there for so many years and a willingness to sever the relationships. These are the points that the writer makes. But there's loyalty more than simply in the workplace that's to be called into question. Loyalty to our country. I was reared with deep patriotism how i loved my country i was born in the state of virginia and the state of virginia hasn't learned yet that there is a nation apart from the state of virginia (laughs) it was the first great state robert e lee didn't fight for the south he fought for virginia if virginia had gone with the north he would have fought for the north and there's an attempt on the part of the educators the Virginia to never let you forget that we're the best of the lot. And so in the state of Virginia, you learn to appreciate Williamsburg and Jamestown and Patrick Henry and George Washington and all of the great figures of history. And it never leaves you because this is an impressionable time in your life that you're learning. I grew up with a great love for my country. And when we went to World War II, I was too young to fight, but I would stand at the street as the busloads of young men were taken out of town to go to the Army post. And the high school band would play martial music as they drove by, and I remember the chills that ran up and down my spine, and how we all wore buttons celebrating our loyalty to our nation. Back then, no one ever thought of desecrating the flag. No one ever thought of questioning the ethics of our government. Should have been, but it wasn't. It was a time in which patriotism flooded and no thought ever occurred otherwise. But today we see dissension in important issues. We have seen the burning of the flag. We have seen criticism of the ideals on which our nation stands, and we're put it to a test today where we must reassert the ideals on which our nation has been built, reaffirm that God is the foundation of our nation, giving full vent to everyone who thinks differently, but at the same time affirming our own and not relinquishing the role of God in our society. Loyalty, to country is as important today as it has ever been, because there will be tests to come that we must really face up to, and this loyalty to our church. I was reared a Methodist, and I suppose that's why I'm a Methodist, but I found out that I was a Methodist, even though I've been reared one, when I found out what it stood for. When I grew up, the Methodist Church was the very heart of my training and my understanding of what it was like to be a Christian. Now I had Baptist friends and Presbyterian friends who had equal loyalty, and I felt no resistance against their type of religion. We respected one another, knew that we differed. I remember a revival in Mountain City. I was just a kid, and old-time revivals back then in small towns, when the sermon was over and an invitation was given, and the saints would get up and walk around and try to get the sinners to come down front. <laughs> now, if you didn't, weren't quite sure who a sinner was, the minister would say, I want everybody to stand, and everyone would stand, and then they said, now, those of you who are Christians, I want you to turn around. And then that left facing the altar of those who weren't Christians. So you know your prey, you could hit, you could hit out on. <laughs> well, there's a young fella sitting next to where I was and he was facing the altar. And this woman came up to him and said, son, are you a Christian? And he said, no, I'm Methodist.
1: <laughs>
0: it was in a Christian church that the revival was being held. but I've seen the loyalty to the Methodist church erode in my more mature years as we have lost sight of the foundation on which our our church was built so few growing up in a church today know anything of the theology of John Wesley know very little about John Wesley you must understand and know if you're going to be in a position to reject And of course, in the Methodist Church, the very foundation of our church is to think and to let think. There was no theology to which anyone had to subscribe to become a Methodist. John Wesley said, if we start setting up theology that everybody has to believe, we'll be fighting among ourselves and arguing among ourselves and we'll never get anywhere. So. Anything that does not strike at the heart of Christianity, we think and we let think. So you can believe in immersion or you can believe in sprinkling. It doesn't matter. You have the right. You can believe in predestination or you can believe in Arminianism in the Methodist church. That's right. Nobody can tell you you're wrong because if it does not strike at the heart of Christianity, you can believe as your conscience leads you to believe. And in the course of my ministry, whenever I brought members into the congregation from other denominations and we would talk about the Methodist beliefs and the Methodist polity, I would say to them, if you hold sincere beliefs with which you have been trained, you do not have to surrender those beliefs to become a Methodist. That's to me is the real genius of our church. We embrace the beliefs of one another even when we differ if it does not strike at the heart of Christianity. Interpretations, interpret it, leave it at that. But today there is so little understanding within the Methodist Church of who we are. And I've insisted that it came about during the time of unification with the Evangelical United Brethren. I had an associate pastor in one of my former churches who was a district superintendent out of the United United Brethren Church never have I known anyone that I was fonder of with whom I worked better. A great denomination, but we should never have merged because we gave up who we are when we came together to keep from offending the other. I used to relish Aldersgate Sunday. That was a day to celebrate John Wesley's heartwarming experience. No one knows what Aldersgate Sunday is anymore because it's no longer observed because We have brought in other factions that do not observe Aldersgate Sunday. The Methodist Church has lost its identity. We don't know who we are. And we can be loyal to something that you don't know really who you are. We take the pledge of loyalty, but we're not quite sure what we're expressing our loyalty to. I believe that Presbyterians ought to be Presbyterians and proud. I think Baptists ought to be Baptist and proud unless they marry one of my children, all three of
1: them.
0: All three of my grown children married Baptists. (laughs) And the two sons married daughters of Baptist ministers. (laughs) But they became
1: Methodists.
0: (laughs) Had dinner with Nancy. Most of you know Nancy, Mike's wife, the other evening. And she said it took me to getting married to Mike to discover that I've been a Methodist all my life and didn't know it. (laughs) But we we need to have a loyalty to our church that we don't really have. We need to have a loyalty to our family. Blood is thicker than water, not the kind of loyalty that brought about the feuding in West Virginia and Kentucky and even in Tennessee, the Hatfields and the McCoys, not that kind, but the family unity that allows a group to stand together, to feast off of one another's experiences, support one another. You need a small group setting in order to grow, and how my heart goes out to those who have no family with whom to share and to grow and to support them. But most of all, loyalty to God. How can you worship God in a strange land? Well, at World War II, every time a soldier left Mountain City, he was given a Bible to put in his pocket, and he carried it into the battle with him to remind him daily that God was there at his side. God is everywhere. And loyalty to that God allows us to preserve who we are no matter what circumstances come about. Loyalty to God in our nation. We can rewrite history all we want to, but we can't erase the fact that the foundation of America was built upon the spiritual attributes of Christianity by George Washington, by Thomas Jefferson, by Patrick Henry, by Benjamin Franklin, All of these who were committed churchmen, who brought their religion into play in establishing the nation itself. Benjamin Franklin even coming to the point in the Continental Congress of saying, let's stop all proceedings and pray and then come back together. And they did, and when they came back together, they solved their problem. So let's not pretend for a moment that we don't have a spiritual foundation on which America is built as others would take it away from us, saying that we're a nation so diverse that we have to take the God of our fathers out of our society. Well, I started out teaching a Sunday school lesson. I ended up preaching, (laughs) and I apologize for that. But there's some things I just feel strongly about. I had the promise of a clock back there that I wouldn't have to look at my watch. But it isn't there yet. I'm going to have to uh, conclude, even though there were two other points that I had originally planned to make, and give you a chance to raise a question or to make a comment on our study of Ruth.
1: Well, what about them? Uh, was there a time I saw somebody it was on the travel? or something there about old churches? And it says, a Methodist Episcopal church. And I can't remember where it was.
0: Just go over to First Methodist, and you'll sit in their cornerstone. Oh,
1: really? Did Methodist used to be
0: incorporated in the Episcopal church? That's I told you we need to learn about our roots. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I'm proud of a Lutheran. I know.
0: I know. When, when I did the introspective on John Wesley, I made the statement that on December the 24th, 1784, that the Methodists of America, John Wesley, did not organize a church. He organized Methodist societies. There were no ordained clergymen in America for the Methodist societies. All the Anglicans had gone home because they were fighting us. Uh, Francis Asbury is the only English Methodist sent by John Wesley who remained behind. All the others went home. After the uh, Revolutionary War, there were very few Anglican churches because they had gone back to England and Methodists had no place to go for the sacraments. John Wesley tried to get the Bishop of London to ordain Methodist lay preachers to make them ordained ministers so they could administer the sacraments. The Bishop of London refused to do so. John Wesley said, I have the same right as a bishop to ordain Because in the primitive church there were not three orders. There were not the orders of deacon, elder, and bishop, only deacon and elder, or presbytery as it's called in the Presbyterian church. And so therefore I have the right to ordain just as much as a bishop. So he ordained Philip Embry and sent him to America to ordain Francis Asbury and any other lay preachers who needed to be ordained. When they came and ordained, they said, we're ordained now, let's have a church. So at Baltimore, on December 24, 1784, the Methodist Society came together and organized a church. They called it the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, shortly before the Civil War, there was a group of Methodists who said, we don't believe in bishops. And so they pulled away from the church and they called themselves the Protestant Methodist Church. And as we got close to the Civil War, then the problem of slavery came to the fore. The North demanded that the Southern Methodists be rid of their slaves. And so it caused a dissension. And so the Methodist Episcopal Church separated into the two bodies, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Everything was the same. No changes made in polity, no changes made in theology, no changes made in practice. They just existed as three individual different bodies. In 1939, at St. Louis, all three groups came together. The Methodist Protestant, the Methodist Episcopal, the Methodist Episcopal Church South, and we became the Methodist Church. And then in 1966, we united with the Evangelical United Brethren and came the United Methodist Church. So, that's that's how it came about. What is the American
1: Methodist
0: Episcopal? <laughs> um, African Methodist Episcopal is the black arm of the church. Um, the blacks were not put out of the church in the South. They were relegated to balconies, and if you go to Oxford College of Emory University, you'll see the old chapel there with the slave balcony still there. And they felt that they were not being fully integrated into worship, so they pulled out and formed the African Methodist Episcopal, and then later the African Methodist Episcopal Zion. Then the CME, which is a colored Methodist Episcopal. Now, there were some who remained loyal to the... Methodist Episcopal Church and back in 64 I believe it was the blacks were in one separate jurisdiction they were part of the Methodist Church but they were in a group of themselves and they were brought then into the main body of the church and integrated into the churches and Holston Conference had the first black bishop coming back from the integration at that time Bishop Scott Allen
1: Say
0: bishop, no. Pardon? The,
1: the word Episcopal actually means with a bishop.
0: That's right. That's all it means. We have a bishop. And the Episcopal Church, as we have down the street, St. John's, and we have basically the same theology. There were 39 articles of religion, and John Wesley said 24 of them are valid. And he sent those 24 over here for us to believe and to ignore the others. Basically, that's the only theological difference between the two.